just read from our passage for this morning's sermon, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and uh, there's a few challenging words in there for us today. We'll start off uh, in order to whet our appetites for what's to come and look at some uh, survey statistics. These were conducted by Pew Research and Barna in America. And the first one here says that according to the study conducted by Pew Research, 57 percent of Christians in the United States say that premarital sex is acceptable. A survey by Barna found that only 54 percent of Christian adults older than 25 say that viewing pornography is wrong. And among teens and young adults aged 13 to 24 it was even less, only 32 percent found that viewing pornography was wrong. Another survey by Proven Men Ministries found that one in three Christian men are stepping outside the bounds of covenant marriage and engaging in sexual affairs. And one in six Christian women. Those are some pretty uh, frightful statistics that we look at. And it is within this context of sexual immorality in our time that we find Paul's words to be just as pertinent and timely for us today as they were the day they were written. Because God's word is always timely, it is, it is always timely because it is timeless. God's word is always timely because it is timeless. Let's first pray and uh, ask the Lord to help us uh, learn from his word this morning. Father, we come to your word with open hearts. We want you to speak. We want uh, you to teach us. You are our teacher. The Holy Spirit is our teacher and we are here to learn and to listen, to grow, to be sanctified, to be more and more conformed into the image of your Son. May these words that I speak not be from me but be indeed your words. I pray that I would preach as a dying man to dying men and that these words would be preached as if you were coming back today, because you may. We ask for your blessing upon this time and that your word would not return void. You've promised that it won't. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We find ourselves uh, in, Thessal in uh, Thessalonica, a city in ancient Macedonia. It's in Greece today, uh, but you can see it up on the map there, and Paul on his second missionary journey, was uh, travelling through this region with Silas and Timothy. They'd just come down from Philippi. You can see, do I have a... There you go. Philippi, down to Thessalonica. And they're in Thessalonica for maybe about a month. And then down to Berea. And Paul uh, wrote this letter to the Thessalonians, probably only about a few months after he was there. And uh, he was in Corinth when he wrote it. Thessalonica was a large city, about 100,000 people, strategically placed. It was on a north, south and east, west trade route. Uh, so it was uh, a pretty iconic city of its day. His trip was uh, cut short there, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in Thessalonica. He was uh, teaching and preaching the church to the, to the, in the synagogues and to the uh, newly formed church there, but was run out of town uh, prematurely. So that's, uh, that's where we find ourselves. 
Now, Paul, there are four movements through our text today. Uh, Paul's plea, verses 1 to 2, and we look at counterfeit love from verses 3 to 5, and the consequences thereof, verses 6 to 8, and then what true love looks like, verses 9 to 12. Paul's plea in verse 1 and 2, we'll read them again. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul is very, very much pleased with the way the Thessalonians are going uh, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica after he'd been there a few months later because he was fearful in his heart for some of the influences that may have come in. And he's really very, very happy with how they're going. And we see in chapter 3 that Timothy reports back to him and he has a good report. And he urges, and, and urges them to continue to walk in this walk that they have begun in a way that pleases God as they have begun. And starting in on this positive note, he dives into the encouragement toward that action which he sees they need to undertake to continue in this path of pleasing God, to, to continue on the straight and narrow. And in verse 2, where Paul says, the instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's saying there is that this is a word that comes with Christ's authority. This urging comes with Christ's authority, and you should pay attention. As I prayed earlier, this is my prayer for the sermon, that it's not just my words, but it's what God would have for each of us today and that his truth would resonate in our hearts today. Moving on to counterfeit love, verses 3 to 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Peter, in his epistle to the church, teaches us that the will of, it is God's will that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Paul takes it a step further here, and he's saying that not only is our salvation God's will, but also our sanctification. And our salvation is that one-off event, the sanctification is that ongoing process. He also goes on in chapter 5 to say that, that in everything that we would give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. If you're ever wondering what the will of God for your life is, there's a few good clues uh, in these verses. So sanctification, what is it? To sanctify. To set apart for a special use or purpose, that is to make holy or sacred. So sanctification refers to the state or process of being set apart to God, made holy as a vessel full of God's Holy Spirit. This is an ongoing process that we begin when we are saved and we are born again. It's the process of becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. As we read from the famous verses from Paul to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
We cannot, first, we cannot become like Christ if we're not first in Christ. That term in Christ being saved, redeemed, born again, one of the foremost terms used in Scripture to talk about the people of God, in particular the church. Two important parts of this sanctification journey, as we see from our text here, are abstinence and self-control. Difficult things to do, not very popular, but to abstain from sexual immorality and to control your own body. And this isn't just for single people either, it's for the marrieds as well. I've learnt that since being married the temptation is less, but it's not gone altogether. Satan and his temptations are still at play and must be resisted nonetheless. What does it mean to control your own body in holiness and honour? Well, Paul seems to ascribe a certain uh, honour and dignity to the human body that requires a mastery. Um, And he implores each of us to find out how to do it. Notice he doesn't talk about controlling anyone else. He says that we should control our own body so we're making sure that we're aware of the log in our own eye before trying to take the speck out of our brother's eye so how do we do it paul uh says to the corinthians in uh, chapter 9 27 that he disciplines he says i discipline my body and keep it under control but um you may say well that's well and good for paul he was the the great apostle the greatest missionary of all time uh, a saint of, of great stature, and I'm just little old me. Well, true enough, but the same God that he served is the same God that we serve. We know it's easier said than done. Most New Year's resolutions don't make it outside of January, so we know that we're not very good at necessarily doing the things we want to do. Colossians and chapter 3 has some really good good gouge on this uh, on this topic sorry for the military term there and in particular verse 16 in chapter 3 of Colossians which reads let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God the word of Christ dwelling in us us in the word, <clears throat> pardon me, and the word in us is what empowers us to control our own bodies, to abstain from sexual immorality, and to control our own bodies, as Paul taught there. The Thessalonians uh, were a lot like we are in the West today hedonistic, pagan, pleasure seeking, lazy, um, and many in that time struggled with sexual immorality and it's true of us in the church today as well the word paul uses for sexual immorality in verse four sorry verse three is porneia in the greek which is the english word for fornication fornication and sexual immorality include everything from premarital sex to pornography to pedophilia to homosexuality to of course adultery as well This was a difficult transition and a hard word for the Thessalonians, as it is for us today, uh, because it was very much a a complete turnabout for the type of lifestyle they were living prior to Paul's arrival there, where he preached the gospel, and many of them were delivered from the vices of these sins. Satan 
is very much at work in this realm as much as or more than the others, and we need to beware of him. Peter, again, says that he roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But that's only one of his guises. His other and perhaps better known one is that of the deceiver, the liar and the father of lies. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the corrupter, the counterfeiter. Everything that's good and holy, he corrupts. He casts doubt on what God says, like he did in the garden with Eve. Has God really said that you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Surely he's not really like that. He's holding out on you. He wouldn't do that to you. This is the insidious nature of the doubts, the seed of doubt that the evil one can place in our minds. God is the creator. Satan never creates anything. He only counterfeits what God has already created and corrupts it. He's the master counterfeiter, and this is true of love and sex and sexuality as much as anything else. The lie that Satan sells, that a little bit of pornography here, a little bit of a, an emotional dalliance with the co-worker at work, a little bit of friends with benefits there, is fine, and it's all a little bit of harmless fun, right? This is just what he uses to ensnare us in his trap and to render us useless. John says in chapter 8 of Jesus' teaching, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Satan's task and objective is to ensnare us. Christ and his, and his truth set us free. This is the opposite of what Satan does. And don't forget Satan's objective. He is the roaring lion. He is seeking to destroy and to devour. Sexual sin and immorality is one of the chief ways in which he does it. Satan is not to be trifled with. We don't fear him in the sense that we fear and reverence God because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. We cannot be possessed by demons. We can be oppressed by demons. We can't be possessed by them. So we don't fear Satan in the sense that we fear and reverence God, but we do take him seriously. He's not to be messed with. In verse 5, the Gentiles do not know God. The reason the Gentiles don't know how to control their bodies, notice as it says in verse 5, is because they don't know God. Paul's making the point that the power to control your body, to abstain from sexual immorality, comes with living in obedience to God and being filled with his Holy Spirit. The next movement in our text is from verses 6 to 8, the consequences of counterfeit love. I need some hydration. Excuse me. <clears throat> All right. We read in verses 6 to 8 that each one of you, sorry, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, 
that God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul moves on to addressing the nature of sexual immorality and the damage that it does. There's a few people here who know what that is. And uh, that's a strike bomber. Sorry, Nico, it's US Air Force. But this is a picture of an aircraft. What this aircraft does is drop bombs. And you can see that in the photo. It's dropping a lot of uh, MK82s or something like that, probably. One of the things that the headquarters of Air Command, the targeting authority for these, uh, these raids that they do, takes into account when they're approving the dropping of bombs is the blast radius of the bomb. The larger blast radius that a bomb has, the more collateral damage it can do. Now, collateral damage is unintended damage, or it's killing or destroying things that you didn't want to. And that's a good picture of the nature of sexual sin. We hear of countless, I mean, how many of us know pastors and people in ministry that have had their lives and ministries ruined because of sexual sin and infidelity, which affects not only them and their body and their walk with God, but it affects their wives, their kids, their family, their circle of friends and their church. It can affect up to possibly thousands of people. The collateral damage that comes with sexual sin defiles the mind. It prohibits us from interacting appropriately or correctly with members of the opposite sex. All the way, as we just talked about, through to divorce and the destruction of families and legacies. It can cause disease in the body from sexual, sexually transmitted diseases some of which, the worst of which, can lead to death. We saw last week, in the last, last two weeks, I should say, that Samson and his penchant for spending too much time with women that he shouldn't be with led to his ultimate destruction and death. The collateral damage is significant. Paul's teaching to the Corinthians as well in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 9, 6, verses 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. It's a constant theme with Paul's teaching. You'll see it's not just to the Thessalonians. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's possible that some of us need to change our mindset of our body from owner to steward. That it's not ours to do with what we want, but actually in that servant-hearted posture as a caretaker that we are caring for something as a steward that belongs to someone else. That our bodies, in fact, belong to God. And I think of it with my boys is that I've got maybe 18 years to 
steward my boys and look after them, teach them the ways of the Lord, and then they're gone. But perhaps I should expand my thinking and think that it's not just my boys, it's my own body as well. And it's not just my body also, it's my finances, my time, my resources. These are all things that God has called us to steward. So so the question is, God, what do you want me to do with your body? How should I engage your body in your service? Should I see this person with your body? Should I go do this exercise with your body? Probably yes, it's a good thing. Bodily exercise profits little, but it does profit some. My wife gets annoyed with me at times for asking too many questions. My love, where's this food for for the boys? Where's their toys? Where's this or that? Uh, And it's pretty, it's, it's annoying because I could probably work it out myself, but it's just easy to ask her. She, she probably does know where it is. Point is, Jesus is not annoyed with our questions and our excessive entreaty. He wants to have that open dialogue with us. He wants to have that open relationship with us. So we can always talk to him as much as we want, and we should. So to commit this sexual sin is to sin against your own body, or God's body, as we saw. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, 11. Sorry, I'm getting the text wrong here. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Sexual sin affects our body, and it affects our soul. Jesus takes it a step further. He said that you have heard it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we see that sin, sexual sin affects our body, our mind and our soul. It affects all of our life, and this is why it's so important, and this is why we must take it so seriously. The great commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If our heart and our souls are tainted with sexual sin, if our mind is filled with with images or memories of an illicit sexual nature. If our body is engaged in sexual activity outside of the marriage bed, then we're not loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength as we're commanded to do. We can't have one without the other. There is good news though. There is grace and forgiveness For those who seek it, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hear this also. Hear this also. Sex is good. It's a good thing. It's a good gift. It's holy. It is 
It's not God, but it's good. You need to be careful not to make good things God things, as sex is often made out to be in the culture we live in. But when God looked out over his creation in the beginning and said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, sex was absolutely a part of that. He could say it was very good because it existed within the particular context, that of marriage and the accompanying commitment that comes with that. It's funny to think about Adam and Eve. Adam was, what, married at one day old or whatever it is, lived for hundreds of years, didn't really know what it was like not to be married. But sex was good and it was part of the original creation. And it's also, obviously, the way God's chosen to continue the human race. It binds the married couple in a beautiful unity that is physical, emotional, and, of course, spiritual as well. And just because God loves us and gives us all things richly to enjoy, he provides the element of pleasure and enjoyment of the sexual union. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Satan is at work to corrupt and to counterfeit God's good design. And the realm of sex and sexuality is rife with that. Many, many of us Christians have struggled with sins of a sexual nature. But the good news is also that many have been delivered from its grasp through accountability, prayer, fasting, and the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, this particular part of the message may be very unpopular, but I feel the need to challenge us. If we engage in any kind of sexual activity outside of heterosexual sex within marriage, it is sexual immorality. This is what Paul is teaching. And both Jesus and Paul make this clear. And Paul, in all of his sin lists throughout his epistles, it's always idolatry and sexual sins. When we are idolatrous, we are putting ourselves up as God. When we are sinning sexually, we are putting, in a sense, our body up as God because of the pleasure that comes with it, fleeting as it is. If we do not struggle against this lust in our hearts, this sexual sin, and we, or we don't feel particularly inclined to struggle or have any sort of sense of guilt, then at that point we really need to examine our hearts to see if we are in the faith because God, through his Holy Spirit, does not allow his people to continue in sin with a clear conscience. Paul instructs Timothy to flee youthful lusts. Flee youthful lusts. It's not a walk in the park. It's a fleeing with intensity and determination. To flee like your life depends on it because it actually does. My hope and prayer is that we wouldn't find ourselves in this situation. But if we do, we fight. The answer to our fight and struggle, though, is in knowing God, as we alluded to earlier. Finding our pleasure in Him and not the quick fix. The Christian's path is delayed gratification and instant obedience. In a world that prizes instant gratification and delayed obedience, if at all. The way through our resolution may be through considerable struggle, but struggle we must. Paul was writing from experience. He had a thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, and it troubled him greatly. He asked God three times to remove it, and God said, I will not. My grace is sufficient for you. 
For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Perhaps we can relate to Paul on that one. My old pastor Nick Coombs, great man of God, used to pray and Ben, I'm sure, is quite familiar with him now, which is, which is, which is really cool. Something that he used to pray, probably still does, and it's really stuck with me, was that if we could see Jesus for as big and beautiful and desirable and magnificent as he really is, that it would change a lot for us on this path to sanctification and holiness. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, maybe second cousin, uh, would, would say that he must increase and I must decrease. When Christ becomes bigger and more prominent in our view, the lusts and the temptations of the former life are greatly diminished in their appeal. So it's not really about us at all. It's all about him. Here's kind of the big idea, really. We don't defeat sexual sin and immorality by fighting like a madman through sheer guts and determination and willpower and grit alone. Those things do play a part. The key to defeating this sin is by finding our joy, our pleasure and fulfilment in something else, something better, something eternal. Or should I say someone? Disregard this message at your own peril, Paul tells the Thessalonians. Same goes for us. This message comes to us not... Well, like a child, a parent-child relationship, we tell our children not to touch the stove because it will burn them. This message comes not just to spoil our fun, but to enrich our joy in something that's truly eternal, something truly life-giving, whether that's for you consecrated and devoted singleness or faithful covenant marriage, which represents Christ in the church. that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Paul's encouragement is that when we engage in sexual sin, we defraud our brother, whether that's by sleeping with your brother's wife or, or otherwise. His point is that the collateral damage that comes with sexual sin is real and it affects not just ourselves. It's not just my little sphere of influence, this fire that burns within me, that fire ends up burning out of control and causing great destruction. Moving on to true love in verse 9 to 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your, own, mind your own affairs and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Uh, this message of encouragement from Paul is probably something you would say to us at Flying Creek today. Um, I think my wife and I would agree that 
for all the churches that we've been to, Flooding Creek is really quite good at loving each other well. Um, and I think certainly it's improved since Samuel and Laura came. So shout out to them. They've been incredible with their leadership. It's been exemplary in this area. My encouragement for us is to do, do that more and more and even to think of new ways to love and serve one another. Jesus said that by this, by your love, will all men know that you are my disciples. So we must remember that the way we love and serve one another is our best witness. That's a really important part of our witness. We've been blessed uh, during having a couple of kids with lots of meals. We really didn't have to think about meals at all over that period, which is a huge blessing. I feel like Simone Goody is one of the most generous and kind people thoughtful i just wanted to give simone a shout out god bless you simone that's someone that we can look to and say this is someone that follows christ's example and as paul said follow me as i follow christ the good news uh, here is that the thessalonians have the best possible teacher in how to love one another as it says god himself through his holy spirit Now, Paul brings the same urgency that he spoke to the Thessalonians with, again, in verse 1, reiterating the importance of his message in verse 10. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. We urge you to do this more and more. Because as the body of Christ, as believers, we know God, our lives will look different to those around us. It's the knowledge of God, as we talked about earlier, and our walk with God, that fuels our life in the beauty of his truth that sets us free. He's the one that teaches us how to live. So what, what is true love? Well, it's a few things. It's multiple things, and we, we get a bit of a clue from the text here. It's an upward focus. It's an upward focus on God and on his son, Jesus Christ, who is truly the light of the world, the hope of the nations, the hope for all mankind. As the ancient hymn writer could could write jesus i my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee destitute despised forsaken thou from hence my all shall be perish every fond ambition all i've sought and hoped and known yet how rich is my condition god and heaven are still my own It's an upward focus on God. It's an outward focus. It's a love for others, as we've spoken briefly about now. To look not everyone on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And Jesus obviously exemplified this and demonstrated this by his life and ultimately by his death. John could write, the greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. To pay the ultimate price for your friends is ultimate love, and this is obviously what Christ did for us in going to the cross on our behalf. In verse 11, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, leading a peaceful and quiet life. This is... Um, Maybe not what we think of as true love, but Jesus did say that blessed are the peacemakers, 
and also Paul again to the Romans. If possible, as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Working with your hands, uh, this demonstrates humility. We spoke at Focus a few weeks ago about what humility is. What does it mean? Um, We said it's not so much um, thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, and it's having an outward and an upward focus. Practically helping people is a way of loving them. We help and we do not burden, as husbands and fathers in particular, we understand that our job is to lead our family well, which means lifting burdens, which means showing the way. It's not placing burdens on our family, but, but lifting them. This is all, these are all ways we can love one another. How else can we love each other well? Um, in the theme of our text, we challenge each other not to be impure, but to be holy. Um, the discipleship groups are a great forum for this, where we can challenge each other and with, with uh, the way we share our lives with transparency and accountability. It's one of those things that we desire most in life, I think, is just real and genuine relationship. And we, they are very rare and desirable, and we can be the ones to lead the way. Verse 11 comes with an interesting uh, juxtaposition. To aspire to live quietly, to aspire to live quietly. Aspiration in our minds is often um, more about climbing the corporate ladder and dominating the workplace, kicking career goals. But Paul's idea of aspiration is to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own business work with your hands this is this is love the labourer is humble they have an air of humility and they are looked down upon but in the upside down nature of Christ's kingdom this is what's valued God came to, to serve and to be a servant of many so the, the walk of this Christian life that we're called to live in comes with work. Whatever that is you're called to, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There's a lot that could be said about the topic of work. My best friend Jared loves preaching about work. Um, but whatever we find to do, do it with all our might. And we're called to walk properly. Walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one, verse 12. Our walk matters uh, because we are representatives of King Jesus. We are ambassadors of his kingdom, whether we like it or not. And the gospel shouldn't be disgraced by our improper living or laziness or improper behavior. So it's not really a question of whether we are a witness of Christ, but what sort of witness are we? Are we a faithful and instantly obedient, submitted witness or a lazy, gluttonous witness that peddles in instant gratification and delayed obedience? We love our families and those around us by walking 
in a way that points to Christ, which are what these practical steps have been. To wrap it up, we take heart in Christ. We take heart in the lover of our souls. No matter what you've struggled with in the past, no matter the guilt and the shame that comes with that or whatever perhaps you're battling with right now, whether you're in the midst of that counterfeit love or you are working hard at perfecting true love in your life, we take hope and joy in the fact that our prime example, King Jesus, lived the perfect sinless life in our place. That by repenting of our sins and placing our faith and trust in him, his perfect life and finished work on the cross culminated in the resurrection, that we can know his forgiveness and the peace, purpose, perspective that comes with it. We should not fear. God has not left us alone. He's given us his son to show the way, who lived the perfect life in our place. And as we're reminded in verse 8, that God gives us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches and instructs us. He comforts us and he empowers us on this mission, this high calling of a life pleasing to God, a life of purity and holiness, of set-apartness to God. It's a challenging call. It's a difficult call. It's not the path of least resistance, that's for sure. In a world that is more and more hostile to God and things of God, we are facing challenges that perhaps the church hasn't faced in the last 100, 200 years. But as you go back throughout history, the Christian church is bathed in the blood of the saints, following in the footsteps of our Saviour. As Paul said in another passage, that I strain toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This life of purity and of holiness will involve work, frankly, and it will involve struggle. But the good news is that he is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he doesn't call us to do anything that he doesn't also empower and equip us to do, which is very good news. Let's pray. Lord, we know that the call of purity and holiness is of a high bar. And we know that it's difficult in our flesh. There's that constant war of the spirit against the flesh. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And we feel that. And whatever our struggle is with, Lord, whether it's, as we saw today, of sexual impurity and immorality, or whether it's laziness, or whether it's just the very common 21st century God of comfort, Whatever it is for each of us, Lord, root it out of us. Help us not settle for the path of least resistance, but help us to follow in the footsteps of our Saviour and King, Jesus Christ, and follow his example to death if that is your call for us. There's nothing in this life or this world that satisfies to the extent that you do. You are our heart's true desire you are the light of the world the joy of all nations 
You are the thing that is really and truly what we all need. And we sense that and we, we feel that. We ask for your Holy Spirit to fill us, to help us to walk in the Spirit, that we would not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, those lusts that wage war against our soul. This is our plea, Lord. We need your help. We cry out to you. We say we love you because you first loved us. We say that we submit to you and to your word, and we thank you for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.